92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only, right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. A one, two, three, four... Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Hi guys, I'm Amy Wright, and today I'm delighted to share a conversation that I recently had with the band Jamestown Revival and Beau L'Amour, the son of the immensely influential and prolific author Louis L'Amour. They all stopped by to chat with me about the new EP, Fireside with Louis L'Amour, a collection of songs inspired by tales from the American West, which Jamestown Revival released on May 28th. L'Amour's stories have been a major influence on Jonathan and Zach's writing, and their lives for that matter, and to see this project come to fruition has been a real treat for everyone. I can't wait for you to hear all about it, so let's get rolling. Without further ado, please welcome Jamestown Revival and Beau L'Amour. Okay, so Beau... Zach, Jonathan, welcome to Diddy TV. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. This is such a treat. We have Beau L'Amour, whose father was Louis L'Amour, the the amazing author who sold over 320 million books. It was just shocking. It's amazing. And then we have um, uh, Zach Chance and Jonathan Clay of Jamestown Revival. And we're here to talk about Fireside with Louis L'Amour. It's an EP they put out that is uh, based on the Louis L'Amour book, Collected Short Stories of Louis L'Amour, Volume 1, Frontier Stories. Did I get that right, guys? Yes. <laughs> it's a mouthful. It is, it is a mouthful. It is a mouthful. But um, it's so great to have you guys. And um, Jonathan and Zach, I thought we could just start with you guys and hear a little bit about how you got together, because you're both from Magnolia, Texas. Is that right? Yes, we are. met when we were... Uh, 14, maybe 15, I think probably 14 years old. Uh, I moved to Magnolia when I was in first grade, and then uh, Zach moved there. I guess uh, we we're ninth grade? Yeah, ninth grade. Yeah, wrote our first song together at the ripe age of 15 years old. We couldn't even drive yet. <laughs> whose family had a ranch? Was it whose family? Uh, yeah, that's that's my family. Uh been in my family since the early 70s uh my grandfather uh purchased it way back when and it's become a a really special place in our family and zach how big was magnolia oh man my family moved from uh west texas which was just outside of lubbock texas which was pretty small and magnolia felt country to me at that time so it uh, was I mean, yeah, it was, it was, it was out in the sticks and now it's since become a little more suburbia, but, um, at the time it was, uh, it was a shock and, you know, coming from West Texas to the, to the East part of Texas and going from, um, there's a joke in West Texas that you can watch your dog run away for days. Um, and in East Texas, 
there were so many trees. So it was, it was a culture shock for me. So both of you were playing music already uh, when you were, when did you start playing music, Jonathan? Uh, I, I, you know, my dad plays uh, piano and guitar and uh, he, banjo, he, he was always playing and I, you know, still think my dad is the greatest, he's my hero, you know, greatest man to have ever walked the earth. And so I always wanted to just do whatever he did. And I got really frustrated with stringed instruments. I, I think I probably quit guitar five different times. And then, you know, I think trying to learn to play it so many times, cumulatively, that added up. And eventually I picked it up and I could do enough to where I didn't get so frustrated and started stringing some chords together. And when, you know, when Zach and I wrote our first song, it was, it was a little finger-picked single note thing. And it was a pretty simple song, but you know even back then he could he could sing like you know the voice of an angel and so we started harmonizing pretty early on and it, it just it, it always felt natural for us to sing together and uh and and harmonize together really we just it yeah it was something we never really learned we just started doing i guess i'm sure we've gotten better over the years though who takes the high note and who's the low note oh he's he's the high note there, every now and then, you know, there are just certain voices and it's like the way he can sing high is something that very few people can do. Honestly, I'll brag on you, Zach. It's a, it's, it's just God given talent. It really is. Um, there, it's a rare breed, somebody who can sing like that. And so um, we like to say, I add in the character. That's a, that's an affectionate word for like pitchiness and, uh, and <laughs> good singing. And Zach adds, uh, the, he adds the real gusto and the, right, uh, yeah. the higher harmony. He's being humble. John, he's, he's got the better ear. So we, uh, that's, that's why we make a good team. Yeah. So you both went off though and started a bit of a solo career right before you kind of got back together. Right. So what, what was that all about? Um, you know, we were roommates in college, uh, so we were always very synchronistic and, you know, what we were into and what we were doing. I just, I got pretty obsessed with music and making a career out of music when I was about 20 years old. And Zach ended up finishing school, getting a degree, uh, and I uh, took a break. I'm still on a break from school, <laughs> actually. And so... Um, I'm still taking a, a really long hiatus and we, we started touring together. We both did solo albums and we wrote on each other's records and uh, helped play on each other's records and stuff like that. And then we started singing on each other's sets when we toured and that was what people really seemed to react to. And so finally we just said, you know what, let's, let's write an album together. Let's make a band together. Let's do more of what it is that people really seem to appreciate. Maybe that's what actually, maybe that's the best we have to offer is to do this together. And so we started doing that and started Jamestown. Really never looked back. So Zach, what does Jamestown Revival mean? What was the significance of the name of the band? Um, you know, at the time, like John said, we were, he had a, a you know, he had established a, a a healthy solo career and I was kind of getting back into it. And uh, when we decided to start Jamestown revival, the idea was um, 
uh, an ode to Jamestown, Virginia and new beginnings, um, like a fresh start. And then we were also listening to Credence Clearwater Revival quite a bit. So we stole the end of their name. Um, and so that, and it just, it was a name that always felt natural and came naturally. But uh, coincidentally, uh, Bo's father was born in Jamestown, North Dakota, which is, we didn't know at the time if we had, uh, we'd, we'd have a better story for it. Yeah, maybe we should just adopt that story. Yeah. That's way cooler. Yeah. Why don't we just start that story, that rumor right now? Yeah. 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 It was, a, it was it. a hat tip to, to Louis. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and you guys over the years have written other songs and that that were based on stories right um you know we've so for the past five years we've actually been working on a musical for uh se hinton's the outsiders so you know we're, we've been it's not necessarily a song per story it's more uh multiple stories encompassed in one novel so that's been a honestly I think a lot of our work for the outsiders actually it, it really helped hone our blade for tackling something like this. I don't I don't think five years ago we could have done as well of a job as we did now, just having the experience of writing based on somebody else's work. And that was, I mean, we went through these these short stories and we we outlined them. And we really, you know, tried to pick what we felt like were the, the critical components of the story. And we really, you know, tried to musicalize those moments and those critical attributes of the story. And some of them were really difficult. Um, some of them wrote themselves a little easier, but some of them, were, it was really, it felt a little bit like a jigsaw puzzle. But when we finally got it, it was really rewarding. You know, when we felt like we got it to a place where it did the story justice. So why did you choose Louis L'Amour short story specifically? Because who does it better? <laughs> That's <laughs> true. Yeah, that guy sets that guy sets the bar. And um, I think we're, you know, in our, we've, I think rightfully so, any bit of uh, legend that he was in real life, we have uh, perpetuated that legend even more so in our minds. And um to almost mythical proportions. Uh, and so we read his, you know, his memoir. Um, that was one of the first things I read, ironically, uh, by Louis and really just became enamored with this adventurer and this, you know, um, this man who read thousands of novels and worked every job you can imagine and like a Rhodes scholar just did it all. Um, especially at a time in our life where we were traveling a lot and really trying to find ourselves and our identity and what that even meant. And so it, the timing was really cool. I'm getting way off the rails here, but uh, yeah, no, you're right. you know, that's what it was. It was cool to meet Bo because um, we got to really humanize Louie and uh, the man who we had, we had in our minds and, and obviously um, getting to sit down with Bo was, was an awesome, wonderfully memorable experience. So I'm going to pop over to Bo on that note and get you in on this conversation. Sure. So what was, 
what was your father like as, as a father? I mean, you know, you grew up with him and everyone else sees him as this mythical person, but you knew him firsthand. So what was he like? Uh, he was a guy who sat in a little, you know, 10 by 12 room and typed all day. <laughs> I had, uh, you know, as a kid, I had a friend whose father was an airline pilot. That was really exciting. Um, and so, you know, my dad, my dad did this thing. He was home all the time, but he was always, uh, always writing. And then, you know, summertime, we'd kind of go out on the road and, go around to all kinds of places where he was doing doing research but he was a wonderful person and we had incredible friends and kind of an amazing home life that i uh didn't know enough to appreciate at the time um just because he attracted all kinds of interesting types of people uh but you know, I grew up in Hollywood. So, you know, my dad was uh, not not a celebrity. He was a, uh, you know, just just another writer kind of slugging it out in the Hollywood Hills, hoping to make sure he had enough money to pay the mortgage next month and things like that. What was his big break in moving his books to movies? Um, I'm not sure that that... Uh, you know, there, there, it would have been Hondo, which, by the way, was uh, adapted was a was a novel, but it started out as a short story, Gift of Cochise, and the guys have adapted that into a song. So that's one thing we can talk about. They can talk about. Um, but uh, Dad uh, was doing very poorly at a particular time in his life. The pulp magazines were failing. He was uh, attempting to make inroads and sell some books into the paperback market, but that wasn't really working. And he sold this short story to uh, John Wayne's production company, and it went on to become Hondo. And uh, he immediately used a little bit of money he got from that to jump on an airplane and fly to New York and pitch himself as a Western writer that had this big movie coming out um, to a bunch of publishers. And um, I, I won't really say that that started his career. He'd been writing for many, many years, but that kind of solidified him as a guy that was saying, I'm going to be a specialist in Westerns. And until, the, until that moment, he had written a lot of Westerns, but he wasn't necessarily committed to that particular genre. And uh, so you know, a lot of it was just him trying to get over a, a rough patch in his life and having this particular this particular kind of wonderful opportunity. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only, right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Why do you think he was so in tune to the Western story? Well, he had grown up, um, I mean, dad had grown up in the West. So he was born in 1908. He was a very old father. And uh, 
he lived in Jamestown, North Dakota, and, uh, you know, which is definitely more farming country than cattle country. But in the mid 20s, his family suffered some financial reversals and they ended up on the road with everything they had tied to the car, like something out of the Grapes of Wrath. And they traveled all over the West doing manual labor of various sorts, he and his mother and his father and his adopted brother. And um, they, uh, they met all kinds of people. I mean, my dad, when the family was working in New Mexico, not, not too many months after they left North Dakota, over the months they were there, dad met four or five people that had uh, known Billy the Kid. You know, you have to recognize this is the 1920s. That was 40 years earlier, you know, and so people were were still around. Um, and uh, as he worked in mines and lumber camps and things like this all across the West, I, I think that Dad gets a reputation for doing a lot of very accurate research, and uh, he did to a certain extent. But I think the important thing was is he was maybe the last guy writing who had been personally in touch with the generations that had created the 19th century history of the United States. So, uh, Zach or Jonathan, either one of you, um, did you read the books as kids or did you did you uh, start reading Blue the More books or short stories when you were older? Zach, why don't you take this one? Oh, um, I, I was familiar, my, both of my uh, family members on either side of my family were um, fans of Louis L'Amour. And my grandfather on my mom's side, who I was pretty close with, was a, a fan of his. And, um, I remember seeing the books. I, I, I probably didn't read one until later, until, you know, high school, college. And then when John found the memoir... Uh, we both really latched onto that, which just opened up after we read the memoir, we were on the road. And I, I distinctly remember a night we would sleep in the back of our car we'd, uh, in the back of a, a SUV we had. And um, we had played a show and whenever we could, we would kind of veer off and go camping in between shows. And, and we stopped at the Grand Canyon and both picked up a, a Louis L'Amour novel and, and, and uh, along the way. And we were just, laid up in our sleeping bags in the back of this car near the Grand Canyon reading Louis L'Amour, which was, uh, you know, just a really cool memory. And then just, I think, added to our attachment and, uh, you know, reverence for him. Well, I was super excited about interviewing you guys about this, but I think that my husband was more excited because he has a whole collection of Louis L'Amour books. <laughs> yeah. So I have a whole collection right down the hallway here. And um, so this was just really such a fun project that I wanted to talk to you guys about it. So where did you guys record the album? We recorded, uh, we recorded the album here in this room. It's a room off the side of my house. We call it Birdsong Studios or Birdsound Studios because on every recording that comes out of this room, it's loaded with bird sounds. Yeah. There, there's trees all around and they sing all day. And, you know, if you do three or four tracks on top of each other with bird sounds intermittently chirping, 
they the cumulative it's it sounds like a cacophony of songbirds outside by the time the track's done if you really turn it up and listen listen to the white noise in between uh it's pretty cool though there's a lot of bird sounds that have made it on albums that have not been intentional because they've been recorded in this room but you know we really wanted to record the album in a way that felt incredibly personal and like we were the orators of these stories um it wasn't it wasn't about us as songwriters. We're really just, we're a conduit for the story. And so, and we were, we were, you know, presenting the story in our language, which is music. And we wanted, that's why we, we, you know, called it, you know, like the campfire. We wanted this to feel like you were sitting around a campfire and we had a couple of guitars and we were picking these songs and you were in tune to the story. It wasn't the melody that you loved about the song. It was the story and you followed along and it maybe our hope would be that it teleported you back to that time, um, back on the trail or, you know, pursuing some accused murderer or, uh, you know, on, ho on horseback. Uh, and so we tried to really keep, you know, not only in uh, maintaining uh, discipline and sticking true to the story, but also lifting some of Louis's colloquialisms and some of the words he used. And uh, that, that stuff we thought was really special. So as we were reading through and take notes and be like, Oh, that was a cool word. Um, calling, you know, a horse, uh, a buckskin or a calico pony, or talking about a miner having a poke of gold or, you know, stuff like that. Uh, we really wanted to keep those things intact and stay true to those things. So before you recorded the album, did you have everything written and ready to go? Or were you still working on them? We recorded or we wrote and then recorded each song um, back to back. And so we didn't write all the songs and then record all the songs. We'd write one song, record it the next day, get to get get together a couple of days after that, try to write another one, um, record another one the next day after that. It took us a couple of weeks working pretty much every day on it to complete the whole thing. So when did you connect with Bo about the project? Um, honestly, we'd written like three songs and we were already, we were already pretty deep into it. And uh, it'd been on our mind, like, yeah, we need to reach out to the Lamora state. We didn't know exactly who was in charge of it or if we'd be dealing, you know, with book publishers or what. And so our manager um, did some digging. He got in touch with Bo and thankfully, Bo ended up being a really sweet dude and great to work with and ended up being really supportive of the project, which I had always wondered, having named our second album after Louis L'Amour's memoir, if Bo knew who we were, because I was wondering if it peaked his radar. And so it was nice to finally just be able to come clean and ask him, like, do you know who we are? And do you know that we stole your father's book title? <laughs> uh, so it, it was nice. It felt like a bit of a weight lifted off his chest. <laughs> well, and Bo, what did you think when you got the call that they were actually writing uh, an album about your father's short stories? Well, Jonathan is right because I, I, I was familiar with who they were. And, and I, I was, I was just sort of like, Oh my gosh, you know, that's, uh, they, they went a step further than calling an album Education of a Wandering Man. And um, I, I was, of course, very, you know, I was, of course, very intrigued to see what they 
to see what they came up with. And I, I'm not a, a musician of any of any sort. And although I have worked in the film business and I've done audio dramas and things like this, and I know how difficult it is to uh, translate a story into any other medium, a prose story or a literary story into any other medium. And I thought, oh, my gosh, that's, you know, they've really got their work cut out for them. And, um, and then I saw, uh, you know, they sent me the lyrics and I thought, well, okay, they really, it's amazing. They really are doing the stories, but they're the, they're really so accurate to the story. I, I don't know how this is going to sing, you know? And I just thought, are they headed for disaster or what? And then I heard this stuff and I was just like, no, this stuff's great. And, um, and so I'm just, you know, I'm just proud as hell to be working with them and to have them to have them do this project because I just think it worked out. It worked out beautifully. It really did. Well, I'll tell you how I was listening to the album. I was listening to it last night on the roof of our building, sipping a glass of wine. I was trying to get in the in the mood, and yeah. I read that it's you should be sitting next to a fire with a with a whiskey. Yeah. So I was in the Memphis heat with a glass of wine. Is that close enough? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that counts. That counts. That's okay. Enough. And the harmonies are beautiful. I mean, these songs are really melodic and forget the story part of it. The songs are just great songs, but the fact that they're actually based on these stories is just, it's wild and amazing. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the actual uh, songs themselves and what story they were based on. So perhaps let's start with Bound for El Paso. Who wants to take Bound for El Paso? Uh, I'll, I'll take that one. That Bound for El Paso was based on Gift of Cochise. And um, that was the very first one that we attempted. We wanted to keep everything in chronological order because our, our hope was that like you did, you know, on the rooftop where you sat down and listened to the album all the way through um, in sequence, we wanted people to also be able to read the collection of short stories alongside the album. So the first song in uh, the first song on the the album coincides with the first uh, story of this collected short stories. Second song, second story, third song, and so on. So uh, we wanted we wanted to make it very clear which songs were for which stories because our hope was that people would con- would experience the stories alongside the songs together. Um, you know, you you listen to the song, you have an idea of what's going on. And then you read the story and get the full picture or vice versa. Um, so Gift of Cochise was about, first of all, that one was cool because it starts off with, you know, a, a strong female. She's almost a lead. I guess you could say she's the lead. Would you say she's a lead, Bo? Yeah, yeah absolutely. She's a, uh, she, she's left in you know her homestead with her children uh while her husband travels into uh the next town well el paso was what he was bound for to to get seeds and things for the the next year's harvest or planting or whatever and anyways he gets killed and you follow basically you almost follow his ghost through the rest of the story and like, and, and the cause and effect of that thing in the chain reaction that takes place. And it actually comes full circle 
back to her. And that one for us feels that I'm, I'm sure there's a name for it, but it's like a lot of old country songs did that. I feel like where you take a chorus and on the first verse, the chorus has uh, your perspective is only this big and the chorus has this much meaning. And with each verse, um, the chorus, you gain more perspective about the chorus. And by the third, ver- third verse, this chorus almost means something completely different. And it's a songwriting technique that we've, you know, often wanted to try, but we never have. And we felt like this was the song, this was the, the story to do with. And so it really laid the groundwork for us to do that. So, um, the first time you hear the chorus, it's much different than the last time you hear the chorus. It, it, it's, it's taken on new meaning. So that it was a really special song. It, this, it was completing this song. We thought, wow, this is going to be really challenging, but really rewarding and a worthwhile pursuit. David Mamet, um, the playwright and screenwriter in some of his work talks about, uh, lead belly referencing, what he calls three uses of the knife. Okay. And it's in, in a song the you know, the knife would be used to cut, uh, bread. The knife would be used to cut a, you know, maybe a piece of paper, leaving a note behind the knife would be, the knife would be used to murder somebody. And it's sort of like in the different uses, the story is told. It sounds a lot like what you're saying, which is pretty cool. Yeah, Absolutely. So how about fool me once, fool me once story? Um, that was based on a uh, man from bitter sands. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was Zach, you want to take this one? Oh, no, no. Go ahead. Um, um, that was, so with this one, we got the idea. Um, it's a little bit of a play on, Fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, shame on you. Um, and it's it's a it's a play on that, but it's not quite that. Um, it's about you know a, a man who offered help to you know some people he found that were on the trail. They were you know dying of thirst and starvation. He took them in, and they basically they crossed him in the night and knocked him out and uh, took his gold. And away they went. And basically he tracks them down and there's a line that Louis wrote. Um, and he was basically saying like, there was nobody that knew this land better than me. I'm like a shadow of the land. Like I'm everywhere, you know, like they can't escape me. And um, we thought that was cool. It's like this man was calm, collected, calculated. Um, but he was almost just, eerily everywhere like a ghost in the desert and so we wanted to reflect that musically and that there's a beauty in the song it's it's there's nothing chaotic about it it's almost uh like as much as two people on a guitar could do it it's almost like operatic in a sense it's it's very beautiful very pretty harmonies but it's ironic because you're you're singing in a beautiful way about this man tracking these people down and you think he's going to kill them when he gets them and um he he doesn't kill them directly the 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 last one he was chasing he he basically turned them on each other one of them killed the other one and and the last one took off and as he uh finally chases this guy down the guy's horse goes lame 
and he's out in the middle of the desert and you know he has a gun but he doesn't shoot him he chooses not to shoot him he just takes the gold and he leaves him and the very last line you know it didn't take a gun to kill him as i turned away to ride uh it it's just those cool little details the way it's like you think the whole time oh he's going to track him down he's going to kill him but it it he didn't and and then you wonder like did this guy survive? Did he somehow make it out? Uh, I don't know. It just, it always leaves a little bit to the reader to think and ponder on. Um, and yeah, it was, that was a fun one. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess for elite athletes only. Right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Well, you said something interesting earlier, Jonathan, about Louis Lamour's actual words he used and the language he used. And Bo, I wanted to ask you a question about that because... It almost sounds like he was part poet because when there's that real precise use of a word that almost describes the thing or the situation that's so perfect, it's not every writer has that. So did he ever write poetry or what was, where did that come from? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Like a lot of writers of his generation, he did write poetry and he started out writing poetry. And so one of the reasons for that was he was without resources. And so one of the reasons that poetry is probably so enduring is the meter and the rhyme acts like a mnemonic to remind you of, you know, if you're reciting poetry, it reminds you what the next line is. It reminds you that maybe you got something wrong and you need to try and figure out what you got wrong. So it's like this code that keeps everything going in the right direction. And um, so he would actually compose poetry in his own memory that he didn't, when he didn't have things to write down. And uh, uh, his first published work was a book of poetry called Smoke from this Altar, which was published in the, in the 1930s in Oklahoma. And um you know, I think, uh, like I said, I think a lot of people of that era um, did, you know, did play around with poetry. And I believe a lot of um, translators are poets, which is interesting because they're always they're always looking for the language and alternatives for this language, alternatives for that language, which helps, uh, you know, which helps them do a really nice kind of literary translation. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. What kind of music did your father like to listen to himself? Um, interestingly, given what the guys are working on, um, dad really liked a lot of work that was being done on Broadway. I wouldn't necessarily say he was like a fan of show tunes, but he was very interested in theater and the theater of his era before he was completely committed to, uh, living in Los Angeles and things like that. He spent a lot of time in New York. And so the you know the the theater of the 1950s was was a lot of musicals and i think he was very interested in the combining of of story and music and whatever pictures the theater you know the theater could create um he tended to like some of the 
guys who wrote about the American West and and uh, people who were folk singers. So uh, I'm just going to mention a couple of names because I think they relate to what um, Jonathan and Zach are doing. So Marty Robbins would be would be one of them. Um, probably, uh, you know, I've mentioned to them another guy named Cisco Houston who did both kind of Western and folk stuff and was a kind of powerhouse in that area. Um, Johnny Cash for, for sure. And, uh, uh, dad was a fan of Johnny Cash's probably from the early, early days, you know, of, you know, his first connection with the Carter family until, you know, uh, until he became a pretty good friend of Johnny's right towards the end of their, of their lives. And, uh, so he liked a lot of stuff, but he liked stories. He liked songs that told stories. I don't know that he necessarily said, oh, yeah, I really like the sound of this. I really like the beat. But there was something about the um, interaction of song and story that always really intrigued him. And that was the thing that interested him as much as I can tell, most of all. So Zach uh, or Jonathan, either one, the last song on the album was Prospector Blues. Did you... Mm-hmm. Did you purposely pick that song slash story for the for the last song? And what is that one about? We um, we we actually went chronologically, so we just followed the first six stories of the short stories, uh, the volume of short stories. So we we wound up on um, it was called Trap of Gold. Um, it's about this uh, this uh, prospector who's kind of out in the middle of nowhere, and he comes up across this vein of, of gold that's uh, a part of a mountain that, that the deeper he goes, every time he pulls a piece out of there, the, the, the mountain threatens to fall on him and he knows he can only get so much out of there before it's time to go uh, or before it goes. And uh, that was one that the song came really, really easily. We read the story, um, both had our, you know, kind of an idea of, of, where we wanted to go and John started strumming, uh, you know, that kind of upbeat thing. And I feel like the song was written in 10 minutes later. It just, it just kind of came out really easily. And it's one of those ones that, you know, there's, there's this guy who's, uh, you're rooting for to, to pull this gold out, but you find yourself with, as with most of these stories, you find yourself kind of questioning the motives of the characters. I'm like, man, would I do this? Would I be this brave? Would I leave that person in the desert? Would I keep going for more gold? Cause you know, there's more in there or when do you, when is enough enough? You know? Um, so it, that, that part of all of these stories is, it was probably the most fun thing is like rereading these stories and, um, sort of find questioning your own moral compass and, and where, where you, where you sit with these things. And, and like, the, I think that's also the sign of a good writer is when he makes you, you know, it becomes a visceral feeling as you're reading these things. Very true. Very true. And Bo, would your father have been excited that his short stories were being turned into songs? Oh, very much. I, I think he did. I think he'd enjoy it uh, enormously. And I think he, he'd enjoy both of these guys uh, very much. It, it's, uh, there's one other thing. It's fascinating to me to interact with people 
I'm really the only person I've ever had a conversation with, and so well, just in my own head, um, who's had well, the way I the way I talk about it would be who's had the hood open on my dad's work, and um, and so I do that all the time. I open up the hood and I go in there and I kind of go, okay, there there are some things here that are going to need to be adjusted before it can be this or before it can be that. And, um, and I'm always kind of confronting, you know, how do I want to present this? What do I want to do? And um, Jonathan and Zach have both had that experience now. And uh, I think it's great. In the past, you know, maybe I had a conversation with a, a screenwriter or something, but like everybody in Hollywood, you can barely tell when they're telling you the truth. And so it's, um, it's, it's really neat to talk to some other creative people who have had this adaptive experience with my dad's, uh, you know, with my dad's work and um, are open and interested and, uh, and definitely still kind of thinking and involved in the, the process that they, uh, that they started some time ago. So the album is Fireside with Louis L'Amour. And it is really super fun. And now that I know that I need to read the short stories and then listen to the song, I'm going to go back and do that and really take it all in because the music really, is great and the stories. You can really test our work. Yeah. Is that? You can really test our work, you know. <laughs> I will up. test your work. You mark my words. But so you guys need to come to Memphis and come see us here at Diddy TV. All of we you. We sure do. I'd love to. Yeah. Standing invitation. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us about this amazing album. And uh, we wish you the best of luck and hopefully we get to see you in person sometime soon. Thank you so much. Yeah. Me. See you around. Take care, guys. Thank you, guys. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Jamestown Revival and Bo Lamore. Be sure to check out the new EP, Fireside with Louis L'Amour, a collection of songs inspired by tales from the American West, available now on all major digital streaming platforms and at jamestownrevival.com. And remember, you can visit diddytv.com for more exclusive on-demand content and download the official free Diddy TV app from your app store today. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. 
FantasyPoints.com. Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.